So with Alice doesn't live here anymore, you get to see more of the emotion and more of that vulnerability that's always present in his work. But you feel it a little more strongly here because it's presented a little more clearly because you don't have any macho posturing and you don't have the violence aspect. Um, it's it's just a story about a woman named Alice rebuilding her life with her young son. What I really love about her, she's fully realized. She she's beautiful. She's uh, fairly talented. She's a great mother. She's resilient. She's a great friend. But you know, she's also emotional. She's kind of going through hell, may not have the best taste in men, and she makes mistakes. And I love spending an entire movie with someone where we're allowed to see everything like that. And it's a very simple film. If if anyone's very hung up on complex plots, this is not the film for you. But if you enjoy character studies, which is what I'm really into, this is just beautiful. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of a podcast directed by... We are continuing this month uh, with our look at early Scorsese movies and you may hear uh, a voice in between these uh, these movies uh, giving an expert opinion and that will be Stephanie Crawford of the Screamcast. So be sure to uh, check her stuff out online and check out their podcast. So the first movie we're taking a look at today, Mike, is Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, starring Ellen Burstyn. Um, so as we kind of mentioned last episode, this is our first look at a Scorsese movie uh, that is female-led uh, in, instead of male-led. And maybe one of the few we will see in these two months uh, that we can say that about. Um, so, I mean, we kind of talked about last time about kind of what we're expecting out of this. So we can kind of just jump in here. Um, so what was your experience of watching, you know, one of the first, one of the only first time watches this month for you in Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore? It's really funny. It's a funny movie. And, Shockingly. Uh, Unfortunately, I guess I had totally forgotten until I got to the end of it, and I was like looking at the Wikipedia page that this is uh, the the Alice sitcom that uh, I guess oh. was in the late seventies, early eighties. Oh, 80s. is this built off of that? Yeah, yeah. Oh. Uh, I which I no think idea. would have been a big turnoff for me. Yeah. Um, Glad I didn't know I that going in. That. <laughs> yeah, um, but I mean, mainly in the film because I, I I say that I've not seen an episode of Alice, but you know the the kiss my grits and all that, you know the, the pop culture sort of stuff. <laughs> right. Uh, I, I would have you know that there would have been an eyebrow raised as far as someone uh, if like Turner Classic Movies, that's the way they introduce Alice doesn't live here anymore. <laughs> so, um, but in particular, the dynamic between the uh, Ellen Burstyn character um, Alice and her son Tommy, um, they're dynamic is cute but also grounded in a reality that you usually don't see like especially with a parent-child relationship where there's uh this element of stress you know it's a, a woman whose husband i mean she's not in a happy marriage and i wouldn't say the kid has a good relationship with his father uh no. very 
you know, uh, very stiff upper lip. Um, <laughs> I think if he talks, he's reprimanding someone. Yep. Uh, and that's it. Uh, so this this guy who we don't like too much and doesn't seem like the the wife or the son to either uh, dies. What after one scene, Dave? Yeah. Car crash. And yeah, gone. I mean, you have two scenes. I think you have the scene where the kid's listening to music too loud, and then you have a scene at the which dinner. he is. He is. <laughs> and then you have a scene at the dinner table, and that's pretty much it. Can I also say that I love how often the kid is actually wrong? Like, uh, there's a sequence later in the film with uh, Chris Christopherson, uh, where the kid just hauls off and like, I guess you know, in a in a, I don't know, like an 11 year old's way. I think that's his age. Uh, like tries to like punch Chris Christopherson, and I guess connects, but you know, doesn't really do any damage. And Christopherson just you know whips him around and then swats him on the rear end, and that of course that starts you know. a dramatic fallout between uh, him and Alice. But I watched it and I was like, Oh, even that element where it's like, I can kind of see all sides where it's right. like this woman's like, Hey, don't physically touch my son. Like, you know, we just started dating. Right. I'm also in Chris, Christopherson's shoes in the, you know, early seventies. He took a swing at me. So uh, yeah, he just took a swing at me and he's like out of his mind, like, you know, screaming, just like, you know, running wild all over his mother. And it seems like everyone else. Yeah. I'm going to swat him on the butt. I mean, that's, you know, I'm right. still of age where that was like, uh, a reasonable response. From I mean, it's not like he backhanded him. I mean, that you know, I think yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't story. go into full on Scorsese territory where it's you know he's like Joe Pesci and he's <laughs> <laughs> stomping this poor kid. I think yeah. you know you bring up the fact that this kid is wrong often and I and almost always, frankly. Uh, and I think that is the only reason the movie works uh, because that kid uh, is kind of obnoxious. Uh, granted, he's in a very difficult situation, you know, you know, he lost his father. They're kind of on the run. Like he's not going to school anymore. He's just kind of like hanging out all day. He has no real friends except for these like troublemakers trying to convince him to steal constantly. Jodie Foster. <laughs> yeah. uh, Jodie Foster's, this wasn't her like initial screen appearance, I'm assuming, but her first time working with Scorsese. First time with Scorsese. Yeah, absolutely. But I think if the kid is right throughout even half of this movie, I think it kind of falls apart. I think you need to... You need to be siding with Alice's character pretty much most of the way through the movie. Uh, and there's a lot of moments where she just like, you know, she tells this kid to shut up. And I, I like that. I like all those moments where like you could see her just like trying so hard to remain calm. Like there's a if anyone has either had young kids or had, you know, young relatives and had to listen to the same story over and over again, like you feel her pain in that moment. Shut the dog! Shoot the dog! Shoot the dog! Did you get it? Got what? That joke, Nancy. Now, remember when I told you about the dog? Um, yeah, I got it, honey. You did not. I'm going to explain it to you. Now, the first time, if the grill falls down, the dog grabs it and swings it around till it's dead. Well, the dog grabs the gorilla and swings... What? The gorilla around by until it's dead. The dog grabs the gorilla and swings the gorilla around until it's dead. Okay, I got but it. But the joke is where the dog grabs it. Where? On the nuts. That's the punchline of the joke. The dog grabs the gorilla by the nuts is the punchline? No, no, that's a major part of the story. You have to know that to get the punchline. Uh-huh. Now, do you know what nuts are? Balls. Right. All right, now, we'll go on from there. Now, what happens... Hey, come on, Tommy. Let me drive the car, Let you? me just tell you the punchline, okay? Well, when the gorilla falls off the tree, you see what I mean by falling off the tree? Well, so when the gorilla falls off the tree, the hunter's yelling, shoot the dog, shoot the dog, shoot the dog. Because he's getting grabbed in the nuts and swung around till he's dead. Isn't that funny? <laughs> Tommy. <laughs> that the gorilla. Tommy. 
it, it's enough. The gorilla fell down, and the dog grabbed him by the nuts. Are you going to tell me this story again? No, I'm going to tell him to you until you understand it. I understand it. Now shut up. Then what's the joke? I don't know. All right, then I'm going to tell it to you again. No. I, you know, I cited with the adults where I was just like, what, what is the joke here? Yeah. I, I don't really I understand that it's a, uh, which is comedic, which is the trap because he keeps saying, yeah. okay, what's the joke then? And then she has to say, I don't know. And then he has to tell yeah. the joke again. And I was like, I really feel for her in this moment. Uh, and I, I mean, I, it's not like Homer Simpson territory or Homer no. and Bart, like where it's that extreme. No. Um, it, it's still in that reality where it's like, you know, she, Alice, and even the other adults don't start at like an eleven with this kid strangling right. him. But you can see, like, you know, that they've that it's wearing on them. That they're, you know, I, I love just watching Ellen Burstyn's face, even when she's like driving, uh, where it's like, you know, you can tell that she's got like eighteen different things like on her mind, yeah. and one of them is this absurd attempt at a joke that little Tommy is trying to tell her. And it's like, you know, we're, <laughs> you, you just feel so much for this woman. And it's like, Oh my God, can we just get out of the sequence? But, um, as wrong as he is, you know, I don't, I don't want to see her like pull over and like strangle the kid right. or like, you know, I, I, that was the worst she does. She makes him walk a little bit. Yep. That's okay. I'm, I'm okay with that. Yeah. I think parenting uh, for me and Dave, this is the <laughs> take <episode>. a walk. <laughs> yes. I think one of the things I like most about this movie is I, it never seems to take the easy way. Like from the very beginning, like it would be very easy to be like, Oh, now we're finally free of this terrible man. But instead it's like, uh, we don't have any money. Like we got to do something. We got to leave. We don't, we don't have a choice. And you know, the scene where she says goodbye to her best friend is, you know, it's kind of heart wrenching because like her whole world is turned upside down and she has to take care of this kid. And I also like the fact that like, yes, she's a singer. She always dreamed of being a singer and she's a good singer. I love the fact that she's not great, though. I don't think there's a moment in this movie where she sings and you're like, oh, my God, she is the greatest uh, talent of her generation. I get you, Dave. So you really got struggle. Wonder, you wanted to see her sing out of her ass, right? Well, now, uh, would you mind uh, turning around for me? Turn around for you? Why? I want to look at you. Well, look at my face. I don't sing with my ass. No, that is a great line, though. That is a fantastic it is. A great, line. A, why do you yeah. need to see? Why do I need to turn around? I don't sing out of my ass. Uh, yeah. That was the moment I think uh, this movie had me. Like, I was like, oh, I like her, like, immediately. Because Ellen Burstyn, of course, you know, is seen as this fantastic actress because she is. So it was like, uh, but I think this is probably one of the earliest things I've seen her in. It's like this in The Exorcist probably. Mm. Um, but I know her more as an older actress. So it was good to kind of go back and see this performance and see why even then she's thought so highly of, because this is a really conflicted character. Um, like you always do root for her, but she's not someone who always makes the right choices. You know, I mean, you look at her mm. whole relationship again with now Harvey Keitel making his second entrance into a Scorsese I'm movie. Glad you brought that up because it reminded me. Uh, shout out to uh, I guess a mutual uh, friend on on Twitter uh, and podcaster um, Niche from PodVU. So <laughs> when I was on a recent episode with him on Sideways, that uh, that seemed to be his his biggest hangup was with the Sandra O oh character, uh, kind mm. of putting putting her family, you know, and herself, I guess, in a, a position where she could be lied to. I mean, thankfully in sideways, it doesn't get as uh, possibly dangerous as it does with Harvey Keitel. A little dangerous uh, here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but um, unlike that film, since it's from 
Alice's point of view, I I understood it more because I'm saying like, good Lord, she just needs to get laid. You know, she yep. even tries yep. like when she meets Harvey Cattell, she's like, just leave me alone. I mean, she says it. I don't know how many different ways. Um, but what seems to I wouldn't say win her over, but what seems to make her feel safe as far as this being like, you know, even if it's just like uh, a sexual, purely sexual relationship was that he seems young and dumb. So mm-hmm. it's like. So he has no attachments like the, you know, the best thing you can say about him that instance is that he seems like an airhead. And I like seeing Harvey Cattell play an airhead. Now, you know, the mask comes off and once revealed that now he's married and he's stepping on his wife, this is all a big ruse to to get laid and form these other sort of relationships with other women. Uh, yeah, then it then it becomes really, really dangerous. But um before that, I was like, you know, get yours, Alice. Like I've seen yeah. you like on the road trips, you know, with that kid. Uh, you just need to, you know, take the edge off a little bit. Yeah, I mean, you really understand why she falls for him. Like he is like very goofy, but in a kind of charming way. And especially with everything that she's put up with so far in the movie, you're just like, yeah, have a good time. And there's no. I also like the fact that, like, of course, you're seeing this from her perspective. So there's no, there's no real hint that he's involved with anyone else. He just seems like you know, a nice idiot uh, who you can hang out with for a while. And that seems pretty good. That's this podcast, the iTunes description. (laughs) Nice idiots. Yes, I'm okay with that. And I think another thing I like about this movie is it would have been another easy choice to have Chris Christopherson come in at the end of the movie and just be the perfect guy, right? And just be like everything Harvey Keitel wasn't, everything her dead husband wasn't, but he's got his stuff too. You know, he's got his lines in the sand. He wants to stay around this area. He, you know, maybe puts his hands on this kid a little too early. Um, so I like the fact that there's still there's still a fight there. It's There's nothing easy for Alice here. Just because she finds a decent guy doesn't mean all of her problems go away. She still has to struggle. Life is still difficult. I mean, the, the best thing, uh, the thing that I really, uh, really liked about the dynamic between Christopherson and bursting here is that, um, you know, he, he has his, as you said, the sort of line in the sand, like he's, he sort of decided like, and that he explains that one, you know, his previous marriage and, uh, he doesn't seem to be involved in his, uh, children's uh, lives from that marriage because they've, they've moved off, uh, was that, that, that whatever place he's found that, that land that he seems very proud of is he had an idea of what his life would be. And he wasn't going to let that go. Like even, you know, even if that, that meant severing, you know, a, a marriage and this, this relationship he has with his kids, um, that, and that that's harsh. Right. But I think it's only harsh because of the, the kids involved. I don't think right. we would necessarily care. That's like, Oh, you know, his wife wanted to move to say the city or whatever. And he didn't, then you're like, okay, well, two people just didn't need to be together anymore. Right. Um, but you know, Alice is coming from a very unsatisfying life. Uh, the only thing she has is that relationship with her friend that she she has the sort of teary goodbye with at the car. Um, but normally, you know, I think as filmgoers, uh, we are rooting for characters to have this great upheaval in their lives that we ourselves, uh, you know, probably wouldn't take those steps. We would be scared to like just throw everything out. But we're sort of, I think movies have shaped our minds to expect that from characters. And what I like about this relationship between the two of them is that Alice is searching for something and like basically searching for when things were good or hopeful, which is her childhood, which is funny. You have that opening sequence where it's this like foul mouthed kid. <laughs> like, you know, it's this sort of like 
uh, Judy Garland sort of picturesque type thing, but with like a sarcastic bent to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and like what she's really like pining for is probably something that never actually existed. And when she was like a kid, she couldn't like get, wait to get out of there. So I like that Chris Christopherson's character is like, you know, you don't even really like, you know, you have this like place in mind, but like you don't really have a firm grasp of what that place is. But even with all that being said, you know, he gets to, you know, I guess his like grand romantic gesture at the end is like, you know what? Fine. I'll, I'll, th- I'll throw it all away. I'll throw it all away for you. If that's what you want. Like I would prefer that you, you know, be here with me. Uh, but you know, let's go out into the unknown. And, uh, it's a rare movie that we're not rooting for those characters to be like, yeah, throw everything away. Cause you know, when we get up, when we stop the movie, we don't really care. We just want to see someone make this grand proclamation right. and then it's none of our concern anymore. But I like that the movie is, you know, it's set in a reality where you're seeing this woman have to settle kind of consistently, um, going from being a dreaded like waitress to then explaining to her son, you know, later on the film, like what's so bad about being a waitress? Like you are seeing these sort of like incremental steps in her finding happiness in places that she wouldn't have expected before. And it's not like movie star happiness where she becomes, as you said, this great like Broadway singer or anything. You know, that's one of the things that as I was watching it, I was thinking about that in the very beginning of the movie, she's clearly settled, right? Doesn't have a good relationship with this guy, but in some ways is relatively comfortable. You know, she's got a roof over her head. She's got food on the plate, all that stuff. It was all a the good basics. kisser, yes, apparently. That's right. He's a good kisser. That's, that's why she ended up with him. Um, and, you know, the standard Hollywood, you expect like, oh, well, she's going to be put in this terrible situation and she's going to come out on top. But in a lot of ways, she settles again. You know, like this guy's a good guy. He's a decent guy, but clearly not perfect, right? He has his hard lines. He mentioned like, you know, his wife and his kids leave and he's just kind of like, all right, well, have a good trip. Like, that's just kind of his attitude. And I'm sure there's, like, hidden depths beneath that. Like, I think there is some stuff that he actually feels. But that's not anything that he's putting forward to Alice. You wouldn't um, unload that on a person that early on. When you yeah. first started dating them? That's not... Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I've, I've one of the things I was trying to figure out is why, by the end of it, even though she's clearly, in some ways, settling again, like, a much better situation than she started with, but I love as, that we are settling for Chris Christopherson. And a giant ranch. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. yeah, we are settling. For okay. Alice. But uh, in comparison to, as you mentioned, like being a Broadway star. Uh, but as an audience member, like I feel okay with it. I feel happy for her. Even though I don't really think much got worked out in terms of the arguments they're having. Other than like, you know, I want you to stay. I want to go. But all the stuff with her kid... None of that got worked out. Like, there's no grand apology for, like, hitting her kid. Like, it just kind of like, all right, we're settling into this. And yet, I think I just am searching for any moment of happiness for this character because she's been struggling for the entire two-hour runtime that by the time she and Chris Christopherson are back together again, I'm like, great. I just want her to be able to rest. Well, usually in movie world, you know, we want to see whoever our lead character is who we're following around, we want to see people like do things for them, you know, to, to have these moments where it's like, okay, now, now it's good. Now I'm comfortable with the, as you said, the characters are settling here. And like, so she has this relationship with a, a coworker, uh, that's very, you know, gregarious, very boisterous woman. Uh, and you She's know, her sort of, 
she is a lot. And I think, you know, I like the way that Alistair handles it. Like, hey, you know, I don't, you know, I don't really care how you sort of entertain. Just leave like, me out of your shit. Yeah, basically just, you know, <laughs> keep my name out of your mouth. Like, don't include yes. me in your big productions when you open up, you know, the restaurant in the morning for all these uh, these workers come in, all the regulars. Um, and this woman doesn't do anything except, uh, you know, in her own way, she, for whatever reason, she likes Alice. You know, and she just, you know, she's probably stuck in this town. This is a new, interesting person. She just wants to like, you know, befriend her and she doesn't really know how to be anything but herself. And there's really nothing that changes other than she grows on Alice in some way. And I like that. I like that. It's the same with the Chris Christopherson character. It's not that he, you know, we see any big change where he like, you know, falls on the sword or anything. Um, he just expresses uh, enthusiasm for who Alice is. And I, I don't know. It was sort of refreshing just to see, uh, you know, the growth is that Alice seems to recognize uh, that people value her uh, or just want her to stay, want to be around her uh, without, you know, becoming something big. She doesn't she doesn't have to. And I I mean, in some movies that would be a defeat or it would have to be, I don't know, it'd have to be like Richard Gere, who's like rich or something <laughs> like to show up into town to, to get Julia Roberts to like swept off her feet. And here it's just I don't know. I feel like Alice is one who like is making all those decisions uh, but I like that it's it's no big like song and dance to convince her. It's just that mm-hmm. she just slowly sort of realizes that she has somehow fallen into being happy. And I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, I think it's cool. And I think it's also more realistic uh, than than most like people falling in love or becoming, you know, or liking a certain place that's done in Hollywood. Like I like like you brought up this fact that like it's not easy and it's not like, well, I'm just passionate about this guy. So now I'm happy. It's mm-hmm. like, no, we run into our problems and we work through it. And I didn't like this, these people I worked with before, but like slowly I'm kind of getting used to it. That in a lot of ways is kind of what life is like. It's not like you like, you know, move to a place, meet a couple people and you're like, oh, my God, everything is perfect. I will live here forever. This is the best thing ever. It's like there's an adjustment period, especially for Alice, who's been traveling this whole movie and running into walls everywhere she goes. And here, finally, there's some people, even if they're not necessarily her type of people right away, they're trying. You know, they're trying to involve her. They're trying to be kind to her in whatever way they know how. Like, you have the one waitress who's over the top, and then you have the other waitress who is, like, I don't know how she does her job, because she whispers absolutely everything. She's, she appears to be scared uh, at yeah. every turn. Yeah, at every, the every wind sound. blows. It's, yeah. like, the yeah. end of the world. So I like that they're not these immediately perfectly likable people. They have their own problems and their own adjustments to make. And Alice does make these decisions, but they all kind of meet each other in the middle. And even though you're only introduced to them, you know, in the second half of the film, there is a pretty impressive arc for all these characters. You see why eventually they like one another. It's not just like magically all of a sudden, well, I guess this person who's over the top and gregarious, I guess I'm going to like them now. Like you actually do see that growth from Alice and seeing these other characters kind of meet her where she is too. This movie really has uh, nothing, uh, really fuck all to do with uh, any Scorsese film, but it's just one that I just recently watched, so it comes to mind. Uh, Friends with Benefits with um, Mila Kunis and uh, Justin Timberlake. I'm thinking, I think, have you seen this? I don't think so. I, th- I think I saw, wasn't there like another one that came out at the same You're time? You're thinking of the Natalie Portman yeah. and Ashton Kutcher one, No Strings Attached. Okay, so Woody Harrelson is, uh, and it, it's a film that sort of, 
uh, announces rom-com tropes, but then immediately like sort of falls into them. So I don't know if it's cowardly or just being upfront about what the movie is. Uh, but Woody Harrelson is like, he is the gay best friend to Justin Timberlake. Um, who it reminded me a lot of one of the characters here, I guess that Alice would come into contact with and that she, he's a bit much, right? He's a big, <laughs> bold personality. Right. Uh, and it just happens to work with Timberlake. Uh, unfortunately, like, and it's why I thought of it in, in modern films, it can't just be that where it's just like, uh, you know, just someone in Timberlake's life, Alice's life. Like eventually that character has to like, kind of do something for Timberlake and also be the sounding board for all of Timberlake's uh, romantic problems in that film. So it's like, you don't, you never get a sense of who this character is on his own or what his, you know, his uh, life is like. And I don't feel like, I mean, there's a couple of times in this film where you have uh, this waitress ask Alice, like, you know, something wrong. You want to talk about it? You know, what's going on with you and uh, Chris Christopherson, Um, but you know, otherwise I think you get a pretty good idea of who she is and her relationship with other people outside of Alice. Like, you know, she has this weird dynamic with the the guy who runs the restaurant. Yes. (laughs) You know, the way they talk to each other, uh, would be very dicey now in a work environment. (laughs) Yes. That would not fly (laughs) right now. No, definitely not. Actually, no, I'll say that, you know, the, the friends with uh, benefits maybe I think it was 2011 and it. Actually, you could probably say the same thing about Woody Harrelson. He's pretty forward in that one. So, <laughs> and, and you know, I like that movie. I'm not talking shit, but it's uh, definitely pales in comparison to whoever the Scorsese guy is. Yeah, I guess he's okay. One of the things I was thinking about before we take a break and then move on to Taxi Driver is there's only a couple things that kind of scream Scorsese to me in this movie. This does stand out as a very different type of movie from Scorsese, not just because it's a female lead, but because it's, you know, he does comedies later, but like this is like a straight it's not a black comedy like it's not super dark it is like genuinely i think meant to be funny through most of it of course there's big dramatic moments but i think about half of this movie is meant to be a straight-up comedy uh but i think the things that remind me of other movies are like when we are first introduced to this character it's when she's a kid uh i think it's set in monterey right is that that's where she's from when she's Mm -hmm. eight years old and there's this uh like the the background is like you know completely red Um, And you see that and he uses that in other movies. You see it in Goodfellas later. But I find it interesting that it's I feel like it's kind of presented differently here because I think that is supposed to be like the best time in her life. Right. When she was singing in Monterey and everything was great and everything was easy. Um, And then also this movie for a lot of it is just kind of a road movie. Until they get to the Chris Christopherson plotline, which we'll talk about later this month with uh, The Color of Money, which is kind of the only other movie I can think of that Scorsese does that for the majority of it is a road movie. It does feel like he's kind of playing with different things here. He is kind of binding himself as a director. Silence is a road movie. No, definitely not. I see where you're going, but absolutely not. Um, so did you feel like this stood out to you as far as like other Scorsese movies you've seen as just being kind of a different uh, different animal? Mm, I mean, the easy answer is that you have a, a female protagonist, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and I didn't, unfortunately, like read up too much on this. I'm only looking at the reception on the Wikipedia page where uh, uh, Ebert makes reference that, uh, you know, I guess it was attacked and defended uh, for the, by feminists uh, mm-hmm. of that time period. Um, I don't, you know, but I don't know if it felt that different. I mean, there's, certainly less violence mm-hmm. in this. And I guess the way people respond to violence is, uh, you know, like it's not their norm. <laughs> so right, they respond right. to it. Like, what the hell are you doing? They don't run towards it. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah. Uh, but you know, you still have grifters. You still got Joey Foster, you know, teaching this kid, you know, how to, how to steal at an early age. And, you know, it's got the whole like, you know, Tucson's very weird type thing. So, <laughs> That's true. um, I, I don't know if it necessarily felt different to me. I, I think that the family dynamic is something that you'll, you'll see some of that mm. darker humor, like with, you know, Joe Pesci and his mom for certain, true. uh, yeah. and Goodfellas. It's just that, this is, you know, a family dramedy, I guess, which mm-hmm. is uh, different than uh, other settings of Scorsese. You know, his, I mean, his, his sense of humor is, uh, I think, kind of off kilter, maybe even broad at times. So I think, like, yeah. you know, certainly with New York, New York, you'll see it in After Hours. Um, <laughs> so I don't know. I don't actually. I'm, I'm actually surprised that it didn't really feel that different for me. Like, I don't mm. think it's an outlier in the sense of like. Uh, oh, you, there's no way you could tell like that this is a Scorsese movie. I don't think it's that. I just think it's just a different. You know, he doesn't focus on these people enough. It's interesting. There's a line here I've just gotten from me. Uh, apparently, one of the uh, negative reviews he got was in Variety, uh, which called it a, a distended bore, and says it takes a group of well cast film players and largely wastes them on a smaller than life film. One of those quote little people dramas hmm. that makes one despise little people. Oh, like, Whoa, jeez, talk about you talking about the coastal elite talk there, Good. Jesus Christ. See, that's actually kind of connected to something I was thinking about. Is that in a lot of his movies, especially as you get later in his career, especially like post Goodfellas, a lot of epic scale stuff going on with Scorsese. Like even movies that are you know, more family friendly, like Hugo are still on this big, big scale. Whereas this does feel very small. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Like this reviewer you were mentioning that like, you know, is cursing the flyover states Mm. at that point, but it does feel very different for him. And I think, I don't think it would, if you were, you know, if you were watching these as they came out, because this is, you know, right after Mean Streets. Mean Streets is not mm-hmm. a gigan- gigantic scale movie. And the movie right. we're going to talk about next isn't that big either. Um, so I think sometimes we can know too much about a director. So when we go mm. back, it's kind of like, well, this doesn't fit what I know about him in 1997. Well, yeah, it's 1975. <laughs> like, things do change when you have a career that long. So that was kind of interesting to see the kind of different scale of this movie. Another rare good point, Dave. All right. I should wrap this one up. Good. Let's wrap it up. All right. We are going to take a break, uh, hopefully hear from our expert, Stephanie Crawford, and then we, we will be back to talk about Taxi Driver. So I think Taxi Driver might have been my second of his films, actually, and I think it took me aback a little bit because of the intensity. Because you hear about it and you, you know, everyone knows like you're talking to me. It's one of those scenes you hear about and see parodied about 20 times before you actually see the movie. And a lot of times when I have that experience, it dilutes what I expect the film to be. And I think that's why it took me aback so much because i i'm no stranger to exploitation films and very violent films but that empathetic power that scorsese has he almost uses it like a weapon in taxi driver he uses it in the darkest deepest way where now we this this isn't alice alice doesn't live here anymore this is travis bickle who while he has a lot of relatable qualities, he's not a pleasant guy to spend an entire film with. And he has so many moments where you just want to sink into the chair until you disappear completely. But again, it's honest. 
it's an incredible performance from De Niro and it keeps pulling you along and you never quite want to let go of its hand all the way. All right, so we're back. This is uh, this one of the big ones, Mike. Uh, Taxi Driver, uh, you know, I think it's pretty well respected. I think uh, people like it a little bit, so no pressure. Uh, this is a movie I think we've both seen numerous times, uh, but I do think it's definitely a movie with levels. I think when you watch it when you're like 16, there's probably a very different experience than when you watch it when you're in your 30s and 40s. Uh, so what was your impression now of watching Taxi Driver for like the, you know, the 20th time or whatever it is? Well, I mean, I don't, I don't want to get too far into the weeds. Like, you know, you, you just sort of previously on one of your rare good points talked about uh, trying, you know, misjudging a film uh, with sort of that modern lens. And what's hard to escape now is this being unfortunately like, and, it, you know, Taxi Driver did have that reputation. You know, it inspired, the, you know, an, an attempted assassination in yeah. the name of uh, Jodie Foster. Uh, Yikes. But it you know it it's very i don't want to say forward thinking it's just unfortunately like we just come up with different i guess branding for these lone gunmen we just we've just regressed so far that now it looks like it was seen it, it was prescient uh but actually we're just going backwards <laughs> yeah i mean it you know it, it if you want to talk about like incel type culture uh you know yeah. this where a man who doesn't <laughs> You know, he doesn't put himself out there, right? So we, our lead character here can't sleep, so he takes the practical, I guess, route, uh, not necessarily a healthy one, of saying, like, well, if I'm going to be up all night, I might as well get paid just to, you know, drive around. You know, if I'm going to if I'm gonna wander the city, then let's just, you know, make this my job. Okay, fine. Um, but then he, of course, when things don't work for him uh, and he's with any, any of those social graces he picks up with the like complete nut jobs that he's, you know, hanging out with at night uh, as they, they pay him to, you know, go, go spy on their uh, wife that's cheating on them. And then played uh, by our director, violence. Martin Scorsese, by the way, I did read, uh, I already, I've already forgotten, unfortunately, like who that was, that actor was supposed to be, but that wasn't uh, Scorsese pulling a Tarantino saying, give me like a juicy monologue. I think, there was an actor cast that was sick and he just mm. like had to step in last minute. Um, he, I mean, he's very good. Very creepy. He is. <laughs> and, and probably, you know, one of the largest roles he has in any of he usually shows up. He does kind of the Hitchcock thing where he shows up very yeah, briefly. This, this film, he shows up, I believe, when Sybil Shepard is walking past. He's like yeah. a guy like sitting on a stoop and like looks sort of looks over his shoulder. Um, so the point I was getting at was that Travis Bickle here played by De Niro uh, doesn't really do anything to fix the problems that he states that he has in his life of uh, feeling isolated and lonely. Uh, yes, he takes a job that travels all over the city, but the people he's dealing with in particular, like saying I'll drive anywhere, anytime uh, he's going to come in to contact with some pretty wretched folks, be it the Scorsese cameo where he's talking about killing his uh, wife who's cheating on him. Harvey Keitel character, uh, a pimp to a 12-year-old girl played by Jodie Foster. Uh, so he allows that to shape like, well, this is how the world is. Like, right. you know, I'm, I've been exposed to this. So like now this gives me the right to become this sort of vengeful figure. Um, also, like most of those type people, 
Um, their 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 aim is you know usually misguided where he's going to he's going to attack a presidential candidate I assume just because it will give him fame and glory right and what he ends up settling for is something that actually gives him fame and glory as a hero which is you know the the big sort of punchline to the movie yeah. uh, a very dark one at that um, but so yeah it's um, ahead of his time and as you said also very much of its time i remember when i first watched it, i was like oh god i never want to go to new york and right. i'm watching this i think I'm, I'm watching this in the you know mid 90s you know and new york of course had to be very different then and then even 10 years after the fact i mean it doesn't probably resemble any of this actually i have, no. I have a picture of myself on the stoop where harvey Keitel stood and <laughs> that looks like a very expensive nice i bet townhouse it is now. Now. Yeah. yeah yeah i think one of the things i like most about about the script and about the direction is how it paints its lead character as kind of useless. Uh, there's a particular scene where he ends up with this presidential candidate in his, in his cab. Uh, and of course, immediately kind of turns around. It's just like, I'm going to vote for you. Cause he's you know obsessed with Sybil Shepard's character and she works for him. That's good reason, Dave. Very yeah. good reason. Oh yeah. Totally valid. I understand that, that piece of it, but I love that the candidate talks to him and is trying to get him like, well, what do you, what would you change? And he doesn't really have any answers he, or even like any thoughts in his head. Just it's everything with him is black and white thinking. Everything is bad. <laughs> Clean it up. Okay. Like you say that drain but... the swamp. That's where we're at with, with this character. All right. Well, I was, I was about to agree with Mr. Bickle, which I'm like, Hey, you know, it's not the you. worst thing in the world to say that the city is unclean. Like if you want to look at it from a more like environmental bent, I'm going to go through there, but then you had to go with drain the swamp. So now I have to back away quickly from that. But <laughs> Thanks, Dave. You're on another moment in my yes, life. Yes, you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, but I, you know, because I think, I think a lesser movie would try harder to get you on Travis's side, where you like you really understand where he's coming from, and maybe he has some good ideas, but like he just doesn't have the social graces to process it. But instead, like he is very much just like, no, everything is bad, and basically, kind of, I'm the only good one, and everything else is garbage. Uh, except for maybe Sybil Shepard's character until she makes one mistake in his eyes and then she's terrible too. So then he transfers everything to this, you know, innocence lost of Jodie Foster's character. <laughs> like there's only one person at a time who could be good I'm, in his eyes and everyone I, else I is terrible. I want to go back. What do you think is the one mistake and from Bickle's point of view that Sybil Shepard's character makes? Not liking porn, I guess. It's her big mistake. See, I didn't think it was that. Actually, because uh, I felt like he was... I mean, he's an idiot, right? Um, and that yes. seems to be what you and I really gravitate towards. So, I mean, we like each other. Yes, um, but we're nice we like, idiots. He's not nice. Yeah. We, well, yeah. I mean, we like Kaitel's character when he was, uh, you know, uh, a horn dog idiot uh, and not abusive and married. Um, and I not actually a pimp think of twelve-year-olds. We tend to not like. Well, whoa, 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 like yeah. That. I'm talking about Alice doesn't live here anymore. <laughs> like, you know, there's really nothing much to like about sport. Um, good arms. It's got good arms. That's about actually it. maybe the only. <laughs> I'll, I'll get to that in a second because I still want to, uh, you know, legislate. I guess here on what Sybil Shepherd did wrong in her breakup. <laughs> okay. But Please tell us the what only... the women did wrong, Mike. Please. <laughs> um, I actually think that the, the sort of you know kicking the nuts if you will here is not her uh rightfully exiting uh a porno theater because she actually does go in which is that was know, shocking like more than most would like all right you know you freak out you know <laughs> I'll, I'll i'll give you this one i guess until she sees it and then she's like you know what no this is it's not for <laughs> me this is this is too weird uh probably because de niro's like you know wanting to like eat candy and popcorn at these things <laughs> that's, that, the to me, that's the weirdest thing about thing. it yeah, yeah that's the weirdest thing <laughs> 
Um, I love that he hits on, I think, the the woman that he ends up uh, being married to, uh, who appears in some of these films um, yes. in real life. Uh, she's the woman in the theater where he's like trying to like flirt with her and then, you know, talk <laughs> candy <laughs> preference. And she's like, dude, <laughs> you know, what are you doing? Um, for me, Sybil Shepherd's big sin uh, in that sequence is, you know, she leaves and is like, you know, nope, I'm getting a cab. This is done. That's all fine. But the kick in the nuts is the record that he's bought for her. I already uh, have like, it. I already have this. I was like, okay, come on. Was that necessary? Like, you know, <laughs> you know why, why antagonize it? You know, if, if it's me yet again, not blaming or anything, not victim blaming, but if it's me, I'm not, I'm not saying anything else. This guy, I'm totally ghosting this man. Yeah. Like, I, also keep, the, keep that record and sell it. I mean, what's the worst? Can happen? Yeah, yeah, I'm not, you know, I've received gifts, gifts before of things I already own. And, uh, not any way that's like dragged me to like a, a porno, you know, on a date, but I just, I just keep my mouth shut. That was the only thing, the only problem I had with that. The only problem I have with the movie, which I pretty much consider perfect. Uh, actually on this podcast, I consider Alice doesn't live here anymore. Perfect too. It's probably the best double feature I'll ever watch for a podcast. Uh, I don't know. And have never really liked that. We drop in on Kytel, the pimp and Jodie Foster, uh, in a private moment, like dancing. Uh, I always yeah. feel like just from Bickle's point of view and what he sees and his sort of skewed sense of the world and sense of what he feels like he has to or he's being guided to. I don't like that we drop in on that that sort of quiet moment with them of Kytel sort of like grooming her to like stay with him for this, you know. Do you really think that's there choice. for for the purposes of the end of the movie? So like we we feel any like we shouldn't feel any pity for him anyway but that i think oh, that, go, that rips it away like okay this is clearly obviously a terrible person and then we're just gonna dive in and make him even more terrible in that moment um but i, I sit there trying to figure out the purpose of that scene because i think already anyone who pimps out 12 year olds you can i mean you could pretty clearly paint them as a villain like, I think we're good. Who knows, Dave? I, I honestly have no idea where we are in the world because I've just in the last you know month seen people really, really up in arms uh, about certain uh, infamous murderers in right. real life being portrayed True. in a negative way on a film. And I won't I won't say it just because for, I guess, spoiler reasons. But uh, so I see stuff like that where, you know, you have <laughs> women uh murdering uh completely innocent people and they're like you know did the, did the film really do them justice like i don't know if they were that bad and i i read that stuff and i'm like i have no idea where we are in the world yeah. like you know, i don't even know how to respond to that like I'm i i always speechless. thought like you know being being left of center and you know, you, you generally you know and keeping if you want to earn those those stripes and you want to stay in the club uh, you know, uh, protecting the rights of uh, victims of uh, a homicide and uh, their their unborn children. Um, that one probably fits. Like, I, I don't know. Like, I, I can't really keep the lines on what's considered like uh, hardcore conservative or liberal anymore. And I think that's probably also true of a taxi driver as well, because I think. You know, you see some of these films like they could easily lean pretty, pretty uh, hardcore conservative and how they deal with vigilante justice. You know, you think of something like Dirty Harry and I think that Scorsese keeps it uh, because we are in the headspace of Bickle so much that we know how truly fucked up he is that we never like we never take that as like some sort of glorious moment where he goes and shoots up this place of uh, pimps and pushers, uh, even though I guess in certain ways it is for Jodie Foster's character and her family. Uh, we know too much about Travis Bickle to truly see this as some sort of heroic act. 
Yeah, I think there's definitely a part of me every time I watch this that like, even though I know how it ends, you kind of hope that he dies in the attempt. Like nothing good is going to come of him surviving. <laughs> well, he does this. too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But nothing good is going to come to the world because I don't, I don't think by the end of this movie, of course, there's a lot of argument over whether the end of this movie is fantasy or reality. I think the movie loses a great deal of punch if it's fantasy i think that's kind of the point which part is fantasy uh him being like him being in the paper the the letter from the parent from the parents okay so not the shootout itself no the shootout happens i think in either situation is this Uh, like one of those like reddit threads where it's like people just can't you know they they can't just enjoy (laughs) i can't enjoy the movie on the same level you did dave so i've got to take it to this this alternate dimension where i'm gonna sort of reshape to fit my my persona like sometimes uh just is what it is like and i think the movie's uncomfortable like it should make you uncomfortable so yeah i think that's the whole point of the ending is that you know we have been inside travis bickle's head this whole time so we know the real story and the outside world just sees this guy who used vigilante justice against terrible people and as the media often does turns him into a hero knowing nothing about him and that should disturb us because now he's being given uh, some positive reinforcement for these actions, <laughs> you know, because for the rest of the movie, everything he does when he practices things in the mirror obviously feels like a total badass. And then when he goes out in the real world, it very rarely works out for him. You know, like he's practicing ready very for this stilted, assassination attempt and awkward. then immediately is found out <laughs> by the Secret Service guys and has to go on the run well, he didn't. So. He didn't have the uh, you know the zip code digit thing down just yet that first <laughs> yes, time. Yes, so he slight. was pretty Slip obvious from the, from the beginning. I actually found myself wondering how this movie changes if they delve a little bit more into his past because all we know is that he was a veteran, like he was in the Marines, or at least says he was. Um, and I I wonder because that is something that is kind of a hot button topic is kind of mental health of our of our veterans. And that's something that's just barely touched upon here by making it known that he's a veteran. Or maybe they're just making him a veteran so we know he can use a, a service weapon. Um, so maybe Scorsese doesn't I, have much to say about yeah, returning military. Yeah, I, I think it, at that time, I mean, I think it's it's shorthand just for that, that it's, he's not a you know complete, I guess, newbie as far as handling himself when it comes to, comes to a gun. Um, but you know, I mean, certainly during that time period, the you know the treatment of of you know vets coming back well, was not great, and this so this feeling that you know they've put their lives online for a war that uh, most of the country didn't want, uh, didn't didn't embrace, uh, and you know trying to trying to find themselves. I, I think that's you know it's it's also a good shorthand for that, right? That mm-hmm. this guy like is is really a man without a purpose now. Um, and also and, maybe why he's not sleeping, <laughs> like probably. Well, and maybe also why he, you know, wants to go into a shootout expecting to die. He's, you know, prepared. He's written a letter. Uh, he's <laughs> told uh, this Jodie Foster character that he's going to go away for a while and or writes and then writes a letter saying that by the time we read this, I'll be dead. Um, so, yeah, I mean, maybe there is this sort of. You know this this reckless feeling uh, that had been ingrained in him that you know his life had you know a very short uh, expiration date coming up and then it didn't happen and so now there's just this emptiness uh, that he's feeling. But yeah, I mean I think I would probably be more comfortable with it 
now um, with the films, you know, trying to tackle that and not really acknowledging it in any way as if we've not hopefully made advances in, in that acknowledgement of what people go through when they're, you know, basically put into combat, put into a mode and then tried to, to bring them back into uh, to society. But as far as taxi driver, I can't say it's ever been, you know, a big hang up with me personally. Right. And, it, you know, we haven't said it, but I think obviously like this is a performance for the ages uh, by De Niro. Like it's pretty much perfect. And it's a really difficult line uh, to kind of balance on here because he is despicable in many ways. Um, but I think there is, you know, it's difficult to talk about now with all the incel stuff that's going on now that you kind of mentioned. But this is a person that doesn't know how, but is desirous of some form of connection especially from women and has no idea how to go about it like he will have one good minute right when he goes uh in to meet Sybil Shepherd for the first time finally and he is charming in that moment she is engaged that's a great fucking minute i mean dude that's yeah. a you know there's a, a line from uh, high fidelity that i i love where john cusack in that movie is talking about uh how he never got over her dating uh, a character played by Catherine Zeta-Jones. And he's like, you know, the, he's like a guy that once opened for Nirvana in his band, like could never get over that hump. Like we, <laughs> we opened for Kurt Cobain and now here we are. Like we didn't never take full advantage of that. Uh, yeah. Uh, De Niro's characters not have, and I don't think most guys of this age uh, would be able to step back from themselves and be like, wow, I got to go on a date with this uh, extremely beautiful woman way out of my league. Uh, and she found me mildly amusing for, you know, a half hour. That's right. uh, that's that's the best you can probably hope for. You're good. Yeah. But when he tries to share any of his very disturbed life with her, that's when things go wrong. Is that, And I think that is a product of him not being able to interact with anyone. Is that all of a sudden now... Um, now he shares this solitary life with someone and realizes like, oh, maybe this is kind of messed up like, <laughs> and has no clue of that beforehand. Like this is normal to him. When you say go to the movies to him, it's go to a porn theater, which is maybe not uh, the most productive way to spend. But, your you time. know, then she just kicks him lays down over that damn record that she's already got. And he now he won't learn his lesson. You know, he just <laughs> he won't know how weird he is. He'll think she was the cruel one. She's the mean one. I'm good. She's she's what's wrong. Yeah. I was wondering what you thought of the treatment of race in this movie, because there is, you know, there's some very pointed moments in this movie that I think, especially now, are probably really uncomfortable. The fact that the Scorsese character that we talked about earlier, you know, makes it a point to mention that his wife is cheating on him. Uh, with a black person. He doesn't say black person. He says that other term that I won't repeat. And, you know, one of the one of the people, the first person I think Bickle kills is a black man who is, you know, sticking up uh, this uh, convenience store. Um, so it's interesting that there's a racial element here, too. And I don't know if that's just indicative of it being uh, 1976 or it being New York City or what. But I was trying to figure out kind of what Scorsese was trying to get across there. Well, I was saying the the original script, uh, the Harvey Keitel character was was black, and so they made a point. I think him and De Niro both, uh, and Paul Schrader, I don't think was a fan of it necessarily. I don't know if he just felt they were doing it for political, you know, correctness sake, uh, or or maybe Scorsese. You know, there was part of that, and also I think. Kytel was originally supposed to play the Albert Brooks part, and hmm. uh, he said, "No, I'd rather play the pimp." So I, I don't know what came first. You know, if they were, uh, you know, casting to just find it hard to imagine Kytel in that 
in that part, like playing someone that soft, for lack of a better term. That would I be can see him playing agitated. I think he would just be highly agitated. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I like the neuroses of Albert, Albert Brooks in, yeah. in that role. I think that works. Um, no, I don't, I don't have a particular hang up. I mean, I say that as a, a white guy with, uh, in particular, like the sequence where, you know, the, the guy robbing the convenience store is black. I like when, <laughs> when you said that, when you brought this topic up, I'm like, okay, we're going to go to the Scorsese, you know, is the passenger and the, the taxi scene. I uh, but then I was like, where else are we going to, I didn't even really consider it as mm. far as, you know, just, and it, because it's just like a thankless, like he, he's a thief and it's just to sh- <laughs> there to show that De Niro, like, you know, can and will, you know, he will kill, kill like, a his, human being his, without yeah, a thought. Mm-hmm. And only, you know, his only thought being like, oh, shit, you know, this these guns I have, like, I, I don't have a license for any of this and I'm going to get in trouble. Um, <laughs> uh, as far as the, you know, the Scorsese thing, you know, his character, I, I think that, you know, you see it come up with, uh, you know, different circles that he chooses uh, to cover in film. And uh, as you mentioned in uh, Mean Streets in the previous episode, uh, you have the Kaitel character like. Uh, sort of fantasizing and flirting with a uh, black woman, but you know, in the voiceover, like he's concerned about what his friends will think of him. Um, I think it's, it's probably just more of, you know, I guess the unfortunate sort of othering that you would see in different time periods uh, right. of film uh, where it's just like, you know, that's something like that you sort of stick to your own type mentality. Uh, and so, any other culture in New York city in particular being a big melting pot that there's this sense of danger that like, you know, I'm, I'm not with the people that I'm, I'm comfortable with. And, um, I think I would have more problems with it now if the criminal element was like exclusively black and right. you had Robert De Niro, uh, who is, as we know, is very misguided and very messed up, uh, you know, propped up as some sort of white savior, uh, that, and that's another movie unto itself, right? right? If you have a white guy go in and shoot up predominantly a black neighborhood, uh, and then somehow the, the media, uh, covers him as, as some sort of hero. That's, you know, that's a, a completely different film, but one you could, could make, but no, other than that, I mean, I, I just take it that, um, and that seems Scorsese, it just adds an element of danger and harshness to the character other than, mm-hmm him just playing wounded that his wife is cheating on him, that there's something darker about this guy yeah. uh, and the way he views his relationship with his wife. Yeah. And I think if, and we'll talk about this over the next couple of months, but I think if Scorsese continued to go back to this, well, I think it would be for me much more problematic uh, going back, but I think he grows as a director. It's not like, you know, you know, another one of my favorite directors, Quentin Tarantino, just uh, is a big fan of the N-word, like just loves putting that in his scripts. Uh, and I think Scorsese kind of like this feels more of its time. Um, and as he moves forward in his career, I think we'll see less of that, which I think which I think overall is good. I think that's probably not a not a great well to go back to for Scorsese time and time again. But this does feel like of the time of the place, late 1970s. You know, downtown New York, it does it does seem to fit and it doesn't seem to me, at least, it, and of course, it's coming from a white guy, but it doesn't feel vindictive. It doesn't feel purposefully racist, at least to me. Well, I'm, I'm glad it wasn't purposely racist there, Dave. <laughs> You're going to catch a little bit of, of heat. No, I'm that, saying probably. I don't think it was purposefully <laughs> racist. Like, I don't think he was being vicious about this. That's all I'm saying. Uh, but a just accidentally racist. <laughs> Stop it. All right. Um, 
So uh, we're done with uh, with Taxi Driver now. So try to put everything else you know about Scorsese out of your head. What you know is coming. What would you expect out of Scorsese moving moving forward? If you were 1976, you had just seen this in the theater and you were anxiously awaiting Scorsese's next film. Mm. Well, I mean, even so he had a... Because uh, this I don't is know. a towering achievement, I think. Like, I think okay. when people first saw this movie, it's like, oh my God, now this is one of the people we look forward to seeing their next film. Yeah, I mean, I can't remember uh, Mean Streets. Was it uh, a modest financial success? Yeah. I know, mean, critically. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, at this point, if I'm watching them, you know, this is 1976... Uh, and I have liked his work, or if I've gone back to, you know, I guess at that point in time, hoping that there's a revival house, you know, playing uh, his previous uh, work, uh, I would think uh, he's doing like a, you know, a, a tennis match thing, right? He's going back and forth. He's following uh, between, uh, you know, this maybe more violent uh, criminal element that he's focused on uh, and uh, the sort of slice of life. Uh, but he, he does seem to focus on. Uh, people in a great deal of stress. I think that's pretty common in mm-hmm. the films that we've just talked about on this podcast. So, um, but I would assume that he goes a different direction than like this hyper violent uh, thing we've seen with with Taxi Driver. That would be my assumption. Then, tell yeah. me how I'm wrong. Well, uh, he certainly goes in a different direction. Uh, you're correct in that. So, uh, our next episode we will be covering uh, New York, New York, and Raging Bull. Uh, so. Quite another odd double feature. Uh, New York, New York, we'll get into, of course, in our next episode, but it is big and broad. It is a two and a half hour long musical. Uh, so Mike's favorite. I just cannot wait to I think hear it was, what Mike thinks. Uh, <laughs> much like I mentioned David Lynch in the previous episode, I had my stopwatch out. I think it was two hours, 47 minutes was the version I watched, Dave. <sighs> Jesus. That's, that's I think mine got one more, one more number because I actually, Lucky you. Much, much research as I did into New York, New York, I'm like, wait a minute. You're telling me I watched the longest cut because I, I own this on Blu-ray. Uh, bought it for eight bucks, a used bookstore, and uh, yeah, I think I've got the extended version. Well, if you're so... paying by the minute, that's a good deal. Eight bucks. <laughs> Shut up, Dave. <laughs> God, I hate you. <laughs> all right, so uh, <laughs> tune in next time when we talk about New York, New York, and of course the classic Raging Bull. Um, if you would like to hear more from us, uh, check us out on Twitter at Directed by Pod, or check out our Patreon page at Patreon.com/slash A Podcast Directed by. <laughs>